my name is Luke. I serve on the leadership team here at Renewal Church of Chicago. I occasionally also get to serve in the Sunday morning teaching, which is happening right now, today. This is, this is good for me. It's a good, good for my heart. It's good for our church to hear different voices, and it's good, frankly, for Pastor D to have a breather one week, right? So uh, today is one of those days, as you know, perhaps we are going through the book of Acts right now. We are asking ourselves, what is the church? because we want to be the original intention of the church in our city of Chicago. So that's what we're doing. And as I was preparing for this week, a, a, a recurring question just kept popping up into my head. And this is the question, have you ever been hurt by the church? Have you ever been hurt by the church? Have you ever been hurt by a Christian leader, a church leader? Have you ever been hurt by a church member? Have you ever been a church member who has hurt someone else? <laughs> now, I think that most of us in this room should have said yes to one of those questions, at least one of those questions. We have been hurt, some of us. We have been deeply wounded, some of us, by the church. In, in a world that is that's, that's crazy with sin, it, it's doubly hurtful when the refuge from the world also can be hurtful. You know, uh, there are two things to say before we even begin into this passage in the book of Acts to these questions about church hurt. First, if you have personally experienced trauma or pain in the church, I am sorry. I hesitated to say that, and the reason is not because, not because as a church we don't want to apologize for church hurt. I hesitate because I know that if you've actually been deeply wounded by the church, it can feel pretty trivial for some guy you've never met to stand up and say, I'm sorry. All the same, I'm sorry. On behalf, as much as I can, some person from Renewal Church of Chicago, on behalf of the church, I say, I'm sorry for your wounds, perhaps that have come through the church or through church members or through church leaders. And second, the second thing that I need to say before we get started is church hurt is not the whole story. Now, it would be deceptive of me to pretend like there's no such thing as being wounded by the church, right? That would just be, I would be kidding myself. I would be pretending. It would be just as deceptive of me to pretend that church hurt was the whole story. You know, as a matter of fact, the reason that church hurt is so doubly difficult, so doubly wounding, is because for Christians and for non-Christians, there's this sense, there's this innate sense, it shouldn't be that way, right? In other words, church hurt is not the whole story. There's something else. The church was intended for something else. If you have been wounded by the church, if you have wounded someone else as a church member, you know, we know, it shouldn't be this way. You know, Jackie Hill Perry is an artist, a musician, an author, a speaker. Yeah, she's that person. She's a polymath. She does everything, right? And she's, she's very savvy and, and, and wise, and you can tell that she's being guided by, by God. And she, she sums up this twofold thing about church hurt, and it shouldn't be this way with this, this quote. She simply asks the question, do you know what God used to heal me of my church hurt? And then she answers, the church the church, what a, what a wonderful summary of, of where we find ourselves. Church hurt is real. And yet, even though it's real, even though it's a real and profound problem historically and today, even though church hurt is real, it is also, church is also the last best hope in a world gone mad with personal and structural sin. Amen. We're picking up today in Acts chapter 2, right where Pastor D left off. 
Right where Pastor D left off, last week we looked at this incredible outpouring of God's Spirit and, and uh, on this festival day in Jerusalem and all these people gathered from all over the then known world together, people of different mother tongues and languages, people of different ethnicities and groups, uh, Jews and proselyte Jews all gathered to get, uh, together in Jerusalem, this outpouring of the Spirit, these incredible signs and wonders. Peter uh, incredibly preaches this sermon, his very first sermon, which was amazing, unlike my very first sermon right? So Peter, Peter preaches this very amazing sermon, and, and people, the apostles, are speaking. They're opening their mouths, and they're speaking in the mother tongues of all of these people from all over the world. We're seeing, right, Jesus' promise, wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, miraculous things will, will happen. And they happened! It actually took place. So that's what happened last week. And then the church, the, the, the first people that heard this message That's where we're going to pick up today. Verse 37 of chapter 2, right? Verse 37 of chapter 2. We're going to read verses 37 through 47 uh, because I want to link together what happened last week with what we're going to look at this week, but we're going to emphasize really verses 42 through 47, that second paragraph in many of your Bibles. Okay, so let's stand together. You can turn in your Bibles. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Stand with me if you're able. And uh, as I read that, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's incredible sermon, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the same gift that's empowering me right now, it can be yours. The gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You guys may have a seat. This is an incredible passage. Uh, It's an incredible painting, especially verses 42 through 47, right? That second paragraph, an incredible painting or picture of the church. We have in one paragraph this, this summary statement of what the original church was. We have this picture, this model. Now listen, if we are going to be the church in Chicago and, and affect this city and beyond, then we need to have a good model of what the church is. Here we have an exceptionally good model. The, the original church gathered together. We have this picture of the church, and to help us through it, we're going to look at three things that this fellowship of believers did. Three things that this fellowship of believers did, and four things 
that this fellowship of believers were, right? Doing and being, what they did and who they were. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but three plus four is seven. A seven-point sermon is kind of bananas, right? But I didn't write the paragraph, and it's all in here. So we're going to try to get through it, okay? So we got seven points, and it's all in the church in one paragraph, right? Three things the church did, four things the church was, doing and being, okay? So first, three things the church did. Three things that the church did. The church learned, the church worshipped, and the church prayed. The church learned, the church worshipped, and the church prayed, and they're all three in verse 42. Look, again, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They learned, right? You see that? To the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, they worshiped, and to the prayers. So first, learning. The, these first Christians, these first like people called into the fellowship of believers, these first people of the church. They learned. They were a learning church. The first sermon of Peter earlier in chapter 2 is an example, right? They, they turned their attention <laughs> to this message from Peter, and, and the apostles' teaching did this radical thing. It helps to connect the dots of the Old Testament. So Peter, his, the original sermon is, is overwhelmingly being preached to Jewish people or Jewish proselytes, that is, people from other ethnicities who have converted to Judaism. And so what does Peter do? He recognizes his audience, and he speaks to them. He takes the Old Testament scriptures and strings them together and says, look at who this points to, Jesus. And they are cut to the heart, right? Do you remember that? They're cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? In the apostles' teaching later in the book of Acts and beyond, it, it, it moves beyond just the Jewish people, and the apostles' teaching is able to reach out not just to, to the Hebrews or to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And, and instead of connecting the Old Testament dots, they, they take the cultural dots and they say, look, all of the things that you're after, all of the things that your heart desires, look at how they are fulfilled in this person of Jesus. Listen, that's you and me, most of us. We are Gentile people that have our hearts pulled in a million directions, and we need the apostles' teaching to channel us and say, look at how Jesus fulfills what you're after, how he provides it. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now listen, everyone is learning from someone. You are learning from someone or something. All of us are. You know, I just heard last week, uh, the, the age 35 and under-ish, uh, the statistic is every person in the United States, 35 years and under, averages four to eight hours a day on social media. You are learning from someone. Now listen, four to eight hours a day on social media sure sounds like devotion to me. The apostles, the first church, the, the, this gathering, this fellowship of believers, they were devoted to a different kind of learning. Now, they lived in an age before digital social network, but they had an analog social network, right? That is, they had ideas and values and, and, and thoughts and, and other things coming at them, information coming at them through their political circles and their family circles, their traditional circles, their, their communities. They had a wall of information. It was analog for them, it's digital for us. And what did they do? They turned their attention and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to how Jesus fulfills what they're really after. 
The first thing the church did was that they learned. Second, they worshiped. You see in verse 42, what does it say? That they were devoted to the, to the breaking of bread. This is interesting. It doesn't maybe perhaps sound like worship to us. Breaking of bread is a phrase that's used twice, just in this one paragraph that we read, right? You jump down a little bit. They, were, they met in homes and broke bread together, right? Here, the, the same phrase, breaking of bread, is preceded by the, the breaking of bread. We miss this. We read right through it because it just, it's, we're not used to it. What, what the Bible is getting at is worship. The breaking of bread is communion. It is the Lord's Supper. You have these people, this fellowship of believers, 3,000 added in one day, and they, when they get together, one of their fundamental practices, there are only three, they learn, they worship, and they pray, one of those is communion. That's remarkable. They, they get together and they remember who Jesus is, what he has done on the cross. They, they, they take the bread and they take the cup and they remember his body and blood. Now, this is so radical in their day, right? The, the, the Roman age era was, was a day of many hundreds of gods. There was a God for every day of festival. There was a God for every ethnicity. There was a God for every city. There was a God for every action. There was a God of fertility. There was a God of wealth. There was a God of speed. There was a God of whatever. There's a God for everything, and here you have this group, this fellowship of believers, this church that abandons all of the other gods, and every time they get together, they remember one. And, and they appeal to the radical putting on of weakness that this God did. Do you see how strange this is? They remember particularly the cross, the God who became like one of them, and the God who gave up himself on their behalf, right? Now, they lived in a day of polytheism. Today, we live in a day of autotheism. I just made that up. I don't know if that's even possible right, of self-theism, right? If, if in their day there were hundreds of gods, in our day, you know what it means? If, the, if, if people are looking principally into themselves for the answers that they need, that means we don't just live in a day of hundreds of gods, we live in a day of billions of gods. Yeah. It's, it's polytheism taken to the max. It's, it's, it's an absurdity. If my job is to turn within and to take time and to think and discover who I am and to, and to then turn out to the world and say, this is what I want to be, and this is how I achieve my dreams, and this is how I get the good life, then of course, of course, we're going to have a world torn apart. If every single person is, has their own agenda about what the good life is for them, of course, it's going to be, it's going to tear the fabric of society, of community. There's no other option. We should do the same thing that the first church did. We, we abandon, what did Peter say? Abandon the crooked generation, right? And turn and devote ourselves to the worship of the one true God, the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, no matter how hard we try. First, the church learned. Second, the church, church worshiped. And third, the church, what does it say? Prayed. The church prayed. The, the 16th century monk, Martin Luther, talked about prayer, and he said, you know, sometimes there's this prayer that, that warms your heart. Yeah. Perhaps you've experienced this kind of prayer. You, 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 you find yourself, this is so strange, not wanting to stop praying, right? For most of us, myself included, I, I kind of have to 
I usually want to stop praying and get on to the next thing. But Martin Luther talks about there's a kind of prayer that, that warms your heart. You walk away and you're, you're energized and you're renewed by the Spirit of God. But Martin Luther doesn't stop there. He says there's also a kind of prayer where your heart is cold. You're, you're stiff. Your, your prayer is thin and cursory, right? Here's Martin Luther's point. Christians pray when they feel like it and when they don't feel like it. This is devotion to prayer. This is what we see in the first century church. Devotion to prayer. Now, what is prayer? Why would they be devoted to it? Let me give you a a fast definition of prayer. You ready? Prayer is pouring out your heart to God. Prayer is pouring out your heart to God. Now, of course, a new people, a new fellowship born into Christ by his spirit, of course, if they feel intimacy with this God, this God of the cross, of course they're going to pour their heart out to him. Right? Of course they're going to be devoted to him. Who do you pour your heart out to? The people you are closest to. And when do you pour your heart out to them? Whether it's easy or not, right? When your heart is warmed and when your heart is cold. The prayer of the people of the first church was the same way. First, the church learned. Second, the church worshipped. Third, the church prayed. And these three practices, these three These three actions formed the backbone or the scaffolding of what the church became, right? So we've got three doings. We're going to move into four beings, four four things that the church was, okay? Verses 43 through 47 show us four character traits. The church was awestruck. We'll go into each of these a little bit. (laughs) The church was awestruck. The church was generous. The church was inclusive, and the church was attractive. The church was awestruck, generous, inclusive, and attractive. Now, I, I mean, we're covering seven items here today. I've got just 15 minutes more here on my timer. Yeah, preachers use timers up here sometimes, right? So, not, not Pastor D. <laughs> Here's the thing. We cannot go deep on all of these seven items right now. But we can, we can just scratch the itch, Right? And the point for us as Renewal Church of Chicago is that we do go deep on these later. If you want to talk more about any of these seven things, let's talk, let's pray, let's devote ourselves, right? Right now, we're getting a survey of who the church was. So, first, the first being, who they were, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. The church was awestruck. This is a direct consequence of what Pastor D talked about last week, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. When you see something astonishing, you are awestruck, right? You stand in awe when you watch an incredible performance of music or of of, uh, athletics or see a work of art or or, or whatever, read an incredible book. You you stand awestruck. You say, how can this be? You say, I want more. (laughs) I want to see that again. You hit the, the, the rewind on the DVR, right? They were awestruck. The, the, the outpouring of the Spirit, it was, it, was, it was creating this miraculous environment where the apostles were healing disease of body, where they were speaking in other tongues, where they were converting people into this new faith, this, this radically different monotheistic faith. And the church was odd. They were odd. Now, now you can't do awestruck. Do you know what I mean? You, you are awestruck. You can't do it. You can't put it on your to-do list. Do awestruck today. 
You can't. You, 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 you see something and you stand aghast, astonished. It's this thing that just seems too good to be true. That was the church in the first century. They were awed. Second, the second being, the church was generous to the needy. More space in this paragraph is, is devoted to the church's generosity to the needy than any other single thing that they were. Did you notice that? They were generous. They, they were generous. Do you see what I mean? It was a character trait of who they were. It wasn't merely a Sunday morning practice of like, and you give some money away. They were generous to the needy. They took, they took it into account who needed what, and they paid a personal cost to see to it that social changes happened. This was more than a vow to poverty. This was a vow to generosity. This was a, a, a personal vow at personal cost to social change. That's what we see. They were generous to the poor. This is a, a remarkable thing throughout the Christian faith. I mean, throughout Christian history, you know, if you look, if you uh, survey uh, schools that were founded, hospitals that were founded, churches that were founded, community centers that were founded, overwhelmingly, these are Christians living out exactly what we see in the very first church at personal cost, disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of others. With, with the poor particularly in mind, that there might no longer be poor among them. It's amazing. The church was generous. Third, so the church was awestruck, the church was generous, and third, the church was inclusive. This theme of inclusivity is repeated throughout the good news, right? So you have Jesus in, in chapter one, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus in chapter one, he tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit, but why? Because power will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to other people who are like you. Is that how the verse goes? No. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and, and to the ends of the earth, to everyone. The church was inclusive. It, it, was, it, it included all kinds of people from all kinds of places. It was radical in its inclusivity. It didn't belong. It was, it was the only, think about this, it was the only religion that didn't belong to any particular ethnicity, to any particular sex, to any particular town or city, to any particular idol. It wasn't bound to any particular altar. No, no, no. It was for everyone, everywhere, for all time, for anyone who would believe the church was inclusive. It was radically, radically inclusive. And, it, and this, this theme of inclusiveness continues even into the paragraph that we just read. What is verse 42? They had a fellowship. This word has been talked about lots. The, the Greek word is koinonia. This, this idea of community, but it's, it's a little bit more than community. It's like community that, that, that gives. It's got like a verb wrapped into it, <laughs> right? This giving community, this fellowship, verse 42, they were together, verse 44, and they met together, verse 46. They, they spent time together. They were inclusive of everyone who wanted to, be, who wanted to believe, who wanted to be a part of their church. There's a Yale historian named uh, Ken Lauderette, who wrote on this inclusiveness of Christianity, and he, he concludes that this is, this is one of the principal reasons that Christianity has endured. I mean, remember, it came out of this era, of this age in the Roman Empire when there were thousands of religions and belief systems and philosophies to choose from, right? Now, how is it, Lauderette asks, that, that Christianity 
endured, and didn't just endure, it flourished, didn't just flourish, it multiplied exponentially all over the world. He writes this, this is a quote from this Yale historian. He says, another reason for Christianity's success is to be found in its inclusiveness. More than any of its competitors, it attracted all races and all classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, to Greek and barbarian. The philosophies never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated. Christianity, however, drew in the lowly and unlettered, yet also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of the learned. Imagine. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas its main rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both rich and poor. In contrast with it, the mystery cults were usually for people of means. Initiation into them was expensive. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. And listen to how how this Yale historian concludes. He asks this question. The query must be raised how this came to be. You can can hear the historian asking the question, how is this possible? The answer is in Acts chapter 2. This kind of inclusivity is is only possible with the Spirit of God. It doesn't make any sense. It is confounding to history how it could even happen. The church was radically inclusive. Another scholar, um, Michael Kruger, He teaches at Westminster. He gave a talk earlier this year um, about how incredibly conspicuous women were in the New Testament and in the second century in the church. And I say conspicuous because at that time, it was so strange. It would have been so strange to to have so many women of of significance and consequence wrapped up in the leadership of a church, right? And so you have, uh, he talks about what made this possible, what, what makes it possible that you can open your New Testament, you can open it up to an epistle, and the apostle is going to address women directly? What made it possible that the church met in her house, right? What made it possible for the prayers of the apostles to, to list out women? What made it possible for Timothy to come to Christian faith, through, not through his father, but through his grandmother and mother, right? What made that possible? And this is what, something that Kruger, the scholar, concludes, is this. The radical inclusion of women was only possible because Christianity radically confronted the sexuality of the day by unapologetically saying that sex and covenant go together. Right? In other words, sex is not something that the powerful demand from the weak. Sex and covenant, marriage, go together. Another way to put this is marriage between a man and a woman as as the context of sex, listen, provided the most radically consensual sex the world had ever seen. The most radically consensual sex the world had ever seen made a way for everyone to be a part of this church. How can that? It's astonishing. I could go on about the inclusivity of the church. The church's radical commitment to everyone meant that they were comprehensively pro-life. You know, in in the Roman day, um, one of the common forms of infanticide was you had a a child that you didn't want, you left the infant on the city dump. When I say comprehensively pro-life, the church didn't just pick it, the church went to the dump and got the kids and adopted them. 
into their families. Comprehensively pro-life. These babies, overwhelmingly girls, they brought them in to the fellowship of believers. The church, I could, I could go on, I could talk about how the church was the first radically, ethnically transcendent religion, completely untethered from any ethnic background. I could talk about, I could share New Testament stories like the master and slave who are reconciled to each other. Imagine. The church is inclusive like nothing else in this world. The church is for women, for men, for adults, for children, for the poor, for the rich, for the lowly, for the educated, for the Greek, the Hebrew, for the wanted, for the, un- for the discarded, for all the races, for all the classes, for all the genders, and for all the ages. Amen. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Radically inclusive. Fourth. And these three that we've mentioned lead in directly to the fourth. The church was attractive. Look at verse 47. What does it say? It says that the church, the fellowship of believers, quote, found favor. With who? With the churchy people in their neighborhood? (laughs) With all the people. This is remarkable. They They were recognized and found attractive by all the people. This really particularly, really exclusively worshiping one guy church was attractive to everyone. They found favor with all the people. And as a consequence, what? More and more were added to their number daily, right? This was a community that people were drawn to. People were attracted to it. In other words, evangelism was happening, right? Evangelism was happening. You know, when when somebody is awestruck, like the first thing that the church is, right? It's, it's awed by who Jesus is and what he has done and why it matters. They, they just stand awestruck. When somebody is awestruck, what do they do? When you are watching TV and you see an incredible play, what do you do? You show someone. If nobody's sitting on the couch beside you, you text them and brag about your guy, right? When, when you see an incredible performance, an incredible concert, an, an incredible person, you, when you learn something incredibly new, what do you do? You tap someone on the shoulder and you say, look, that's evangelism. You know, a few years ago, uh, here in Chicago, Nick Walenda, do you guys remember this? He did the tightrope walk across two skyscrapers over the Chicago River. A friend of mine went down to see it. I didn't because I'm old and I'm like, ah, there's a lot of people there. I don't want to do that. So he told me about it, and he went to go see Nick Walenda do, do the tightrope walk, and he said it was interesting because there's, there are these crowds of people there, and they're all waiting to see, and they're all looking up. And he said, and then there's all just the other people in the loop, right, or in River North that are just doing their thing, right? And, and inevitably, if they came within eyeshot of Nick, Nick Walenda, what happened? The people there to see Nick tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, look up. Look at what I have my eyes fixed upon. Can you believe it? How can it be true? You know what? Nobody who had their shoulders tapped and, and, and looked up at Nick Walinda, nobody said, don't put your beliefs on me. Nobody said that you keep what you're looking at private into yourself and I'm going to look at the sidewalk while I walk to work. Nobody said that. Why? Because it's astonishing. It's astonishing to consider what Jesus has done. And when we, when we are awed with him and with his power, we point and we say, look 
and it's not. When it is done right, it is winsome. It is attractive. It is not offensive. We are pointing to somebody who has accomplished something that we could have never accomplished on our own. It reaches into our hearts, and it answers the questions. It, it, it breaks apart the presuppositions that keep failing us. Look at what Jesus has done. The person who is awestruck cannot keep it to themselves. They must point and say, look. The church is devoted to learning the good news about Jesus. The church is devoted to worshiping the person of Jesus. And the church is devoted to praying in Jesus' name. Those are the three things the church does. And the church, when they do this, they become more and more awed with who he is. They become more and more generous because if he's done this for me, I can be generous with everyone else, particularly the poor. The church becomes more and more inclusive. Why? How could I ever exclude somebody? I, myself, was an outsider, and I was brought in. The church becomes more and more attractive, evangelistic, pointing to, acknowledging who Jesus is. This is the kind of church that's, that day by day spends time together at home and at the church gathering. Did you notice that too? This is the kind of people that want to be together. In other words, uh, <laughs> how, how can I put it? The, the church in the first century was not, everyday life wasn't disrupted by the church. No, no, no. Everyday church was disrupted by life. Yeah. You see, they were together all the time. They wanted to be together. They, they, they ate together. They spent time together. They prayed together. They worshiped together. This is the kind of church that can never engage in the kind of hypocrisy that wounds others. Why? Because of people who are generous, who are awestruck, have actions and have beliefs that are aligned. Hypocrisy, the definition is words and actions that are not aligned. A person who is awestruck, a person who is worshiping, a person who is generous, has actions who are aligned with their beliefs. This is the kind of church that can never be judgmental toward outsiders because a worshiping, inclusive church knows that but for Jesus, they would be an outsider too. This is the kind of church that is a real fellowship, a real community. Uh, this is the kind of church that, uh, that gets at and actually transcends what sociologists call thick community. In other words, if you were to do a survey, and many have been done, of the age 40 or so and younger, many of them say, in their top one, two, three things, that the thing that they're lacking in their life is community, real community. Have you heard this? Have you thought this? Have you wanted this? Right? Thick community is the kind of community that makes a claim on you. Here's what I mean. Thick community is not fleeting, fragile community. You know, what so many people are looking for when they say the word community is somewhere that they can go and be uh, only and exclusively affirmed. I have this idea of who I am and what I want and where I want to go and what I want to be, and I need a community that will affirm all of those things. That community, by definition, where you can only receive affirmation, is fragile. It breaks apart because guess what? We all have different ideas. We need a community that, in the words of uh, Jonathan Haidt, a sociologist, he's not a Christian. He says, we need thick community. We need a community with standards that transcend any individual's needs or ideas or affirmations. 
This is the community. This is the fellowship of believers. And listen, do you think for a second that when all of these people joined the church, these thousands of people in one day and beyond, many were added to their number every day, remember? Do you think for a second that they were just attracting all of the people who were already generous and already inclusive and already uh, thought differently about the sexes? Of course not. I mean, come on, give me a break. In other words, this community changed them. It was thick community. It was a fellowship that challenged things that needed to be challenged. It was, it was a community that, that took in powerful men, and they gave up their mistresses. It was a church that took in mistresses, and the mistresses gave up their idolatry of being desirable by those men. Imagine. It's a church that changed people. It was a community that was real. Three things the church did. It learned, worshipped, prayed. Three, four things the church was. Awestruck, generous, inclusive, attractive. Why? Are we studying this church at all? Because if Renewal Church of Chicago wants to endure, if we want to make a difference in this city and beyond, here is our model. This is our model. The church in the book of Acts. This is what we imitate. (laughs) And let me say something. We are on our way. We are. I'm encouraged. Let me say something else. There is work to do. There is work to do in my own heart, in many of your hearts. There are places we need to change. There's more radical generosity that we need to engage in. There's sexuality that needs to be confronted. We are on our way, and there's work to be done. This is the church in Acts. We don't want to be a church in Chicago merely with the name Renewal, We want to be a church in Chicago that lives out renewal in Jesus' name. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, we do say just hallowed be your name. Who are we that you would call us into community, real community, not pretend or fleeting or fragile community, real community with you, the fellowship of believers. I pray for all of us who are here who are part of that fellowship. Lord, would you bind us even more together in your love. And for the people who are here who are uncertain about this fellowship, who have questions or skepticism, Father, would you meet them where they are? Would you show show them exactly what this passage says, that this is for them and for their children and for all who are far off? I ask these things in your name, for your sake. Amen.